Bell, your host. The focus today is ecclesiology, the nature and structure of the church. My guest is Denis Fortin. Dr. Fortin is professor of historical theology at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary. He earned a Master of Divinity from the seminary and a Doctor of Theology PhD from the University of Laval, Quebec. He served as a pastor in Quebec and serves as teaching pastor of the One Place Fellowship on the campus of Andrews. He's authored many publications on Adventist history and theology. His latest include One in Christ, Biblical Concepts for a Doctrine of Church Unity. His annotated 125th anniversary edition of the classic Steps to Christ received widespread support and praise. He's co-editor of the LNG White Encyclopedia and in 2004 published Adventism in Quebec. Welcome, Denis. Uh, thank you, Skip, for inviting me to uh, join your conversation today. Uh, pleasure to, uh, to be with you here. Denis, help us interpret the term church, its meaning, its way of going about being church, something of an overview of models or patterns of the church. You know, when we look at the New Testament and we begin to uh, hear or read about the church in the New Testament, uh, the church is never a building. Uh, and But, you know, in, in our society today, uh, in our context here in North America, uh, when we think church, we often think of a building. Uh, a collateral meaning of that tends to be also uh, an institution. The church is an institution. The church is uh, some entity that has a headquarter in some town on some street and so on. Uh, but in the scriptures, the word church really means a group of people. It is an assembly. It is uh, the believers in Jesus as the Messiah, the long-awaited Messiah promised to the Jews. They believe in him. They form a gathering together. They form a fellowship, and that's called the church. Uh, the Greek word really means the, those who are called out, out of the world, uh, to believe in Jesus uh, the church is really, first and foremost, about people. It's not about buildings. It's not about institutions. It's not about corporation or constitutions and church manuals. It's really about the people who believe in Jesus and who want to serve God uh, in response to salvation and proclaim this good news of Jesus as our Lord and Savior uh, to a world that is uh, oftentimes uh, hopeless uh, lacking direction, and the church is, is that's the mission of the church. It is to go out and, and to tell the world that there's a good news in Jesus and that uh, Jesus is, is a beautiful Savior, that God loves us. And that's the church. That's, that's a fellowship uh, of, uh, that we see there in the New Testament. However, through time, of course, you know, there's 2,000 years since Jesus came and since the beginning of the New Testament church, per se, a lot of history has happened and a lot of developments also have happened. So that today when we talk about church, we mean all kinds of things. And not all churches, denominations here, are the same. They don't all function in the same way. They don't all see their activities in the same way as well. So a number of models, a number of patterns of being church a number of, of uh, ways of understanding church has evolved through time, through the centuries. So to, 
continue answering your question, let me go through perhaps a, a few of those models. Um, they tend to be discussed anytime <clears throat> you, you pick up a book on the doctrine of the church. And here we refer up to the institution of the church. And uh, one of the dominant model is what we call the Episcopal model. It's based on a Greek word, which means uh, overseer, which means oversight, uh, which means a bishop as well. So the Episcopal model is basically uh, that model of the Episcopal Anglican Church for the Protestants, also Lutherans uh, and uh, some Methodists as well, and then the more ancient, older churches like the Roman Catholic and the Orthodox churches. All of these are following an Episcopal model. It's hierarchical in structure. There is a person, usually uh, it's a bishop, who is responsible for a district of churches and uh, is the overseer of these churches and uh, also will dispense ordination and the sacraments so that the plan of salvation may be well uh, activated within these parishes and these congregations. So it is based really on the model of a bishop, of, of a hierarchy, where uh, human beings, they tend to be men here for most of the denominations, where men will be responsible for the church. If you don't have a bishop, you cannot really have a church. Uh, because the bishop is constitutive of what the church is. So that's the most ancient model, so to speak. Then, uh, since the Protestant Reformation, a little before, we have uh, two other models that are found much more in Protestant denominations. One is called the Congregationalist model. It's the model that is espoused by Pentecostal churches, by Baptists, uh, Mennonites, uh, the Church of Christ, and most mega churches as well. The Congregationalist model is, the, as the word says, the congregation is responsible for what is happening within that model. Uh, the decisions are made at the local level. They decide who's going to be their pastor, what they're going to believe, if they're going to be in association with other uh, congregations like Baptists, for example. They form the, the vast uh, Southern Baptist Convention. So local Baptist churches form an association together, which they call Southern Baptist and so on. You know, the Pentecostals have the same model as well. And so things are decided at the local level. Some principles there are democracy, representation. People really have a voice into what is happening in their congregation and in that denomination, so to speak. The, uh, the congregationalist model is really the one that puts forth, you know, the concept of the priesthood of all believers. Every single believer has a voice in what is happening in that model of the church. And then in between, there's a, a third model, which is the Presbyterian model. That model tends to be adopted by Presbyterian churches. Of course, that's where the word comes from, but also all the Reformed churches, Calvinist, perhaps we would call them as well. And they are based upon the model of an elder, which is the translation of the word presbyteros, presbyterian. The elder, councils of elders, councils of elders that are lay people and employees of the church, pastors, 
who come together and in committees make decisions for the church. And there, that model has adopted uh, a, a few layers of administration. So there's the local congregation, but the local congregation does not stand alone as it does in the congregationalist model. It is part of what is called a presbytery, a synod, or a conference. That's the word we have adopted. And, and the churches within that organization, which tends to be regional, like the Michigan Conference or the Pittsburgh Presbytery of the Presbyterian Church USA, uh, there, is, there is a council that will administer these local congregations, that will guide them, supervise them. And then oftentimes, a number of conferences or presbyteries or synods will gather together and form some kind of a higher, a third-level organization uh, called a, uh, a convention or called a convention or a uh, larger synod. We call it, in, at our level, a union conference. So these are the basic three levels of, of church organizations that we have in the world today. Our Adventist model, I'm anticipating yes. your question there. How yeah. about us? Our Adventist model uses a hybrid of all three models. But I believe, and, and um, that's not discussed very much in Adventism, I believe that the Adventist dominant model is the Episcopal model. I've argued that in a couple of articles in Adventist Today a few years ago. And uh, although we don't use the word bishop, which is the dominant word used in the Episcopal model, the structure of our church organization, the hierarchy of our church organization, the responsibilities of our conferences and our conference presidents, the way things are decided, the way things are implemented, the way things are required or or. Uh, or uh, compliance is required, are all indicative of an Episcopal model. So we use vocabulary that tends to be Presbyterian. We, in English, in the English world, we call our pastors elder, elder so-and-so. Uh, well, that, that's a Presbyterian language. Uh, we use a lot of committees to make decisions. That's very Presbyterian. Uh, our churches belong to a conference. That's very Presbyterian as well. But beyond that, the responsibilities that are given to the conference president, according to our church manual, these are a lot of them. These are responsibilities really that are Episcopal responsibilities. The way we are structured with multi-levels of organization. So you've got the local church belonging to a local conference which belongs to a uh, union conference, which belongs to a division of the general conference. So you've got four or five, three or four or five levels here. That is very much an Episcopal model of church organization. Um, as part of our culture as well, uh, the way we have functioned, the way we have remunerated our uh, church leaders, is really according to an Episcopal way of doing things. Let me explain here. Um, a pastor receives such a salary. The conference president will receive uh, a salary a little higher than that. 
the union president a little higher than that, the division president a little higher than that, and then the conference officers, president, secretary, treasurer, a little higher than that. So if we've got a hierarchy of remuneration, and along with that, we've got a hierarchy of authority that comes along. So part of this ethos here, the way we do things in our church, leads all toward an Episcopal way of functioning. And if we compare ourselves a little bit more closely to here in the United States, the United Methodist Church, UMC, we basically have a copy of their ways of functioning. They are a Protestant Episcopal model. Their conference presidents are called bishops, although they function in the same way as our conference president functions or vice versa here, because they came first and we came second. And and so we, we basically, we have that kind of a model, which creates some conflicts uh, in our denomination, I think, at the time. And if we have the kinds of conflicts we've had in the last five, 10 years over women's ordination, over compliance committees, over who decides what a lower organization is going to do or how to act and how to respond to policies. If we've had these conflicts, it's because we have not really understood how our own Episcopal form of church governance is functioning. And and we think that we're functioning like Presbyterians, while in fact I think we're functioning like Episcopal folks. And our church leaders are, have a whole lot of authority that lower organization, uh, I'm not too sure about anymore, at least in some sectors of our church. Well, Denis, is it accurate then to observe that while our members may think we have a Presbyterian or hybrid model, that in actuality our leaders are moving more and more, our organization more toward an Episcopalian uh, model? Yes, I agree with that. That's, That's true. I think our church members are being told you have a voice, elect representatives to the conference committees. Uh, We function through boards and councils and committees, and there is participation of lay people on these committees. That's very Presbyterian in its model. Um, But when it comes to wisdom, when it comes to creating the agenda, when it comes to finally making a decision, I tell you these church leaders have a lot of authority, have a lot of say. And in some countries of the world where we are very active, uh, church leaders are really acting like bishops. Um, you know, they set the agenda. They decide who's going to be elected to various positions. And and their their say is is dominating the conversation much more than what lay people are, do, are saying. Now, uh, Denis, um, my observation is that the New Testament does not strive to give an exact organizational model, but a careful study of the New Testament does contain a theology of ministry that would inform a more hybrid model. And I I wonder about the tension. And can you, in a few words, revisit a biblical view of how we should be as church contrasted with this drifting more and more toward an institutional model? I don't know if that question helps, but can you focus a moment on kind of a biblical foundation for our ecclesiology? Very good question. You know, as time goes, 
when an institution functions well, it tends to become more and more institutional. And I think we can say that we've been blessed as Seventh-day Adventists. You know, we've got a tithe system that makes us very, very healthy. Uh, we have tithes and offerings, and, and that makes us very healthy in the ways we function. And there's a tendency, therefore, to go toward the Episcopal model. But I, I don't see that in the New Testament. Uh, in the New Testament, I see lay people very involved in all kinds of activities. Uh, they're being blessed. Uh, God is using everybody, is using people like Dorcas uh, to bless the local church. And the words that are used also to describe the ministry of uh, of apostles and early church leaders in the, New, in the New Testament is very intriguing. Let's take Paul, for example. He describes himself over and over, now depending on your translation of the Bible that you're using, in the King James, uh, he describes himself as being a minister of the gospel. The newer translations are, are saying he's a servant of the gospel, and that, that's intriguing, because the word that is used, that Paul uses over and over, that's the dominant word in Paul's letters, is the word diakonos, deacon, but it's a better translation is the word servant. The King James translated that word minister, and the newer translations, like the NIV, translates it as servant. Paul understood his ministry as that of a servant, servant of Jesus, servant of the gospel, servant of the people. As he taught the gospel, he, he, he served Jesus. And you know, Jesus in Matthew chapter 18 or 19 says, you know, don't lord it over people but you ought to be servants of one another. That, that's how you will recognize my people, by service. And that's really the ministry that we see in the New Testament. Uh, Paul and his colleagues, co-workers, were servants. And uh, they weren't there just to, to argue, to direct, to command uh, what was to happen in the church. Uh, they were there to serve Jesus primarily. Now, over time, of course, some structures needed to be put in place, and we see the appearance of elders and, and uh, overseer and deacons and so on. But in the early years, um, very much a ministry, servanthood-oriented type of ministry. Servant leadership, in other words. Uh, listening to God and, and guiding people in the ways of the gospel as, as they saw it, as they understood it coming from Jesus. Uh, that's uh, helpful, and it brings to my mind uh, the implications of that biblical root and forming of church with the realities that we struggle with. Without being judgmental in how we go about struggling with those realities, uh, in my mind, I, I want to ask you to respond to a question regarding implications. So as we look at a biblical foundation for ecclesiology and what happens in our life as an institution, what are the implications for church authority, church organizational leadership, how persons serving in those roles uh, go about their work? Yeah, lots of implications. I see lots of implications in what is happening uh, in the New Testament and how it should inform our church today. But it is very difficult to make the connection. Uh, we cannot 
dismiss or forget, you know, 2,000 years of church history, and for us Adventists, about 160 years or so of our own history. And through time and through what has happened, you know, there's been developments and processes that have happened, and uh, we end up with the church organization we have today that we have today. It is what it is, so to speak. And uh, But having said that, it doesn't mean that what we see in the New Testament should not inform the directions that we take today. And, and, and that's important to keep that in mind. So today, I perceive that our church is, is being tempted. It's a temptation to become even more institutional, to become more centralized, to have a few church leaders making some very crucial, important decisions. Uh, sometimes I, I sense that some church leaders are not listening to what is happening at the lower levels where the mission of the church is really, really happening. And I think this is where the New Testament must inform us and, and help us be mindful of the dangers that we face if we turn toward more institutionalism instead of more decentralization and letting local congregations and local entities uh, grab you know, uh, the mission of the church. Servant leadership is about fulfilling the mission of the church at the local level, and leaders in our church ought to be cognizant of the fact that everyone is involved, and those who are involved at the local level must have a say, must have input into how the mission of the church is functioned, and who is going to fulfill that mission of the church at the local level. And to me, that would have been a much more healthier uh, way of handling women's ordination and, and who can be ordained, who can be a servant, who can be a leader of the local congregations if we had understood this New Testament principle. So the implications are vast also perhaps in some other directions. If we fear, and I must admit that some people don't fear that, if we fear that our church may be going toward a stronger, more imposed uh, institutionalism. And again, I say, some of us don't fear that. In fact, they want it. But for those of us who fear it, then I think some things should be done and put in place to prevent us from becoming more institutionalized and perhaps bring out some of the beautiful concepts of Presbyterianism and Congregationalism uh, back up to the surface and let those concepts guide us to avoid more institutionalism. Here are some uh, suggestions that I would make, and I made those in these articles that I referred to earlier uh, in Adventist Today in 2018-2019. Uh, one of them is term limits. Our church leaders should have term limits. The fact that our church leaders have no term limits, they can serve as long as they want, for decades even for some of them, that's really a characteristic of an Episcopal form of church government. You're a bishop for life, so to speak, or a pastor for life. Term limits. Um, one term, two terms, Presbyterians, typically, uh, their uh, conference Presbytery uh, moderator is one term. It's about two to four years. Some In some, it's one year. And then after that, what do they do? They go back to uh, pastoral ministry in a local congregation. 
we should have term limits. Uh, we should also be cognizant of the fact that the lower organizations, that the lower level, so the church congregation and the conference, they are really responsible about the mission of the church and how it is implemented in their local fields. So our church policies, you know, we should look at them as, uh, as good policies, but sometimes they ought to be adapted to the local culture, the local situation, and not be so rigid about some of our policies. Uh, that's what they are. They're policies. They're, they're not, you know, eternal dogmas uh, of the Church of the New Testament. So these, these are ideas. Perhaps another idea, perhaps a little bit more controversial and perhaps more um, dreaming about this, is that if we really want to echo our Presbyterian roots uh, of our uh, organizational system, I think we should change the way uh, our church, top church leaders function. And instead of having a president who acts like a bishop, perhaps we should have moderators or general secretaries of the conference and of the unions and so on, <clears throat> perhaps even the general conference. And the moderator is elected for one term or two terms, and after that goes back, you know, to uh, another uh, pastoral ministry function, uh, that there would be rotation. Um, a moderator is not a president, and that would bring a total different dynamics in our committees and in the way things function. Now, I know that you have been a conference president in the past uh, in your career. I don't know how you would relate to that. Uh, but again, uh, these are ideas. These are suggestions. Uh, if we want to prevent going toward more institutionalism, we ought to be careful and we ought to think carefully <clears throat> about the other models and, and what they bring and, and the good ideas that they perhaps uh, could give us. Well, I heard uh, very helpful uh, reflections, probably surrounding three core ideas, and I, there might have been an additional idea there that I missed. A term limit, which does kind of describe it as a service done by one among others serving in terms, it reduces that hierarchical sense of the institution somewhat. And uh, then policies, oh yes, policies being helpful ways to move instead of dogma, thus they become flexible and subject to the prayerful reflection of the body. And, and then, I, then I heard you kind of uh, talking to the heart of a person serving in a particular organizational role. And I think I hear you saying, see yourself as serving, not filling a controlling, directing role, that you are coordinating, you're helping the organization gather, make decisions, move forward in a sense of being led by the Spirit. My observation about that third one is it actually takes confidence that the Holy Spirit is alive and well on earth. Amen. That's very true. <laughs> yes, you're describing my third point. Yes. Now, I want, I want to uh, 
did he ask you also? Those are very helpful, and, and those help us uh, kind of move in the direction of a hybrid system that's more at least uh, open to a biblical ecclesiology. But I want you to talk about the idea of unity for a moment, how this drift towards the institutional view of the church is affecting the question of unity today. Mm. Oh, it is. It is affecting it, I think, in a very, very major way. And there again, um, I have in Adventist today, um, uh, in the winter edition 2020, an article on unity in the church and how I see unity. An institutional organization of the church, the one that is uh, very much based on institutionalism, per se, understands unity primarily as compliance, obedience to rules, regulations, policies, and also to the leaders of the church. It's the tendency, it's the natural tendency of an institutional form of church organization, of any organization, not just church, business as well. Um, if you are faithful to the church, you are faithful to the leader of the church. You are faithful to the policies, the beliefs, the rules and the regulations of the church. You you toe the line, so to speak. So it, it is based on, on that kind of relationship. Uh, you pay a faithful tithe. Uh, you, you attend services faithfully every week. Uh, you do what you're told to do. You, you behave, you, you dress properly, you eat properly, and so on. It's very much of an institutional way of understanding the church. I don't necessarily see that as the dominant New Testament perspective of what unity is about. Paul over and over in the New Testament said that unity is based primarily in the fact that we all confess together one single Lord and Savior, and that is Jesus Christ. Because Jesus is my Savior and your Savior and everybody else's Savior. There is de facto a spiritual unity between all of us. We are all interconnected spiritually because we believe that Jesus is our Savior. And that is the primary understanding of our unity of our church unity ought to be in any church organization. I may have different opinions about a particular belief, about a particular standard, a policy, who should be the leader, and so on. Regardless of that, in Jesus, there is a unity between you and me. So therefore, my speech about you, my reflection about you, my relationship with you ought to be guided by that spiritual connection we have together in Jesus. My, yes. convers my conversation about others who are not of my denomination ought to be guided by the fact that they also claim that Jesus is their Lord and Savior. If we understood that as really the primary, primordial New Testament understanding of unity, then I think the rest of it would fall into line. That's very helpful, Denis, Dr. Fortin, because, um, yeah, on the one hand, you have the human tendency towards compliance to institutions, concrete, it's yes. visible, it's 
you can put your hands right on what it means. It's compliance to institution. Um, coming up against this spirituality, this heart and soul matter, if you'll kind of permit me to wander in those terms a bit, where the center of unity is God with us, God dwelling with his people in their various contexts, cultures, places of being, and it is a more spiritual center. Uh, Denis, uh, just as we finish here now in the next couple of minutes here, only wrapping this up, I am reminded, and uh, those engaging in the conversation who are Adventist immediately, when I say a Laodicea and y'all, oh yes, we know what that means, but for everyone, there is a sense of a condition. John spoke of it in his writings and reflections while he experienced exile of a condition of the church that has lost that primary passionate focus on Jesus as the center. It's described as a Laodicean condition. Can you just, uh, I guess I'm asking for a bit of an appeal to keep us from wandering away to a lukewarmness, uh, an institutional lack of that passionate commitment to Jesus. Bring this to a conclusion, perhaps, Denis, with just a, an appeal to have that heartfelt spiritual connection with Christ be the root of our ecclesiology. I'm afraid I'm putting words in your mouth, <laughs> but Denis, what do you think? Well, I think... Um we, you know, for, for us Seventh-day Adventists, um, the seven letters to the churches of the book of Revelation, chapters two and three, you know, we have looked upon the description of the, or, or the letter to the church of Laodicea, the seventh of the letters, as being uh, a prototype of, of who we are as, as a Christian denomination, group of people at the end of time. It's the last of the churches. And the last of the churches, therefore, has this lukewarm condition. Now, oftentimes in our interpretation of these letters, we have focused on the fact that the church members are lukewarm, and therefore they ought to let Jesus come into their hearts so that they will be either hot or cold, but preferably hot in their mission and in their relationship with Jesus. But you know, perhaps a better way of looking at this interpretation is that uh, the apostle here, John, is or Jesus is speaking to the church as a group of people, the church as an institution. And it is saying to the institution, wait a moment here, you're not hot, you're very lukewarm, in fact, and you as an institution, there are some problems with you. And I've noticed that some of the language being used here, you know, you, you don't know, you don't realize that you've prospered. You feel like you need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. I wanted to some ex to what extent we as a denomination are not realizing that, you know, we are poor. Uh, we don't have really intrinsic value as a denomination. And that uh, all of our prestige and good reputation, you know, that's good, but in fact, we are naked. That as a denomination, you know, uh, you know, we think we've got a lot of wisdom, a lot of truths, and so on, but in fact, we're blind and we're not seeing things. 
perhaps we as a denomination, as, as a core group, as a corporation here, a core group, we should reflect as to how we together as a group may not reflect the ideal that Jesus has for us. And, and what troubles me here is that uh, Jesus, in, in this letter to Laodicea, G- Jesus is portrayed as being outside, knocking on the door to enter. Well, that's a, ah. that's a dreadful image, isn't it? Jesus is not in the church. He is outside the church and would like to be admitted into the church. Have we realized that as a denomination, that perhaps Jesus is not inside and he would like to be in the church? Um, Perhaps our drive toward more institutionalism, toward big things, to be, you know, the best of this and the best of that, maybe that's driven Jesus away from us. Um, It's a spiritual reflection, of course, that is needed there. And I would invite us, church leaders, anybody who is listening, you know, to, to reflect on that message to Laodicea and to try to see what it says to the church as an institution and, and, and what we can learn from it. Uh, so a healthy, a biblical ecclesiology is Christ-centered filled. He is the Alpha and the Omega. (laughs) Hey, thank you. Thank you, uh, Dr. Furtan. It's been a joy to have you with us today. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. And uh, folk engaged in the conversation by listening, this is Skip Bell. Thank you for joining us. Until next time, keep thinking, keep believing.